This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, March 25th, 2017. And uh, we are doing episode 91. Episode 91. We've done 90 episodes of uh, awesomeness for you, our fans. Welcome to the latest episode of Geek Gab. We were supposed to have a guest star here today, but uh, uh, we don't. So <laughs> you will be regaled with all of the unscripted, last-minute, absolute brilliance that we, your three hosts, are capable of providing. Speaking of the three hosts of the show, John, how was your week? It's been a pretty good week. Uh, lots of personal stress and strife, but things with the puppy are going well. Just a couple of weeks ago, I started up a, my after work gaming session, Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition, which I hope maybe we'll spend a few minutes talking about later today. And uh, other than that, life is life. How about you, Brian? It's been extremely eventful. For reasons that I'm not, not sure I'm allowed to talk about, uh, considering our minimum controversy rule, but let's just say there was a uh, there were a couple of high-profile book launches that um, I got involved with signal boosting, and things kind of got out of hand in a, a fun way, but uh, ended up being a lot of fun and uh, highly successful. Um. We can talk about it. It's kind of funny. It's uh, it is depressingly political. Um, I, I think it's on topic enough. We're we're talking about the uh, recent shenanigans with science fiction and fantasy authors on the Amazon. Is is it uh, Brian knows the story best best of all of us, so he can go ahead and and run through it. Um, knock yourself out, man. Sure. All right. Well, author. John Scalzi of Tor Books has, for a while now, had a, uh, a much publicized book due to come out this month. Actually, it was originally due to come out a year ago, but uh, it was it was delayed. Some people said that it, it needed a massive rewrite. Scalzi himself said he needed to take the time to get it done right, you know, given the, the, the benefit of the doubt. It didn't launch until March 21st of this year. Well, over at Castellia House, lead editor Fox Day said, well, you know, I bet that we could release our own book in the same general theme and genre. And um, it was known beforehand that Scalzi's book was going to be kind of a pastiche and an homage to the late, great Isaac Asimov. So Fox contacted a, a new author said, hey, would you like to write a story in the vein of Asimov where the entire galaxy is run on these complex algorithms where AIs are now, have been programming themselves for, you know, since time immemorial and no one checks the code anymore and an error has appeared in the code that, that threatens all of civilization. And this guy said, sure. So they wrote what came to be known off and on as 
the Croding Empire, as kind of put calls his collapsing empire. And they put up for pre-order you know, several weeks ago with a launch date of March 20th, one day before Scalzi's book. And first of all, it started out selling his in pre-order. <laughs> right. So the you know, parody book actually doing better than uh, this highly, highly publicized uh, mega marketing campaign book from the industry's biggest uh, sci-fi fantasy publisher. That has been touted as a New York Times bestseller for like six months now. Yeah, the whole series has, which is interesting, because this is the first book in the series. So, so enlighten, enlighten me, you guys, uh, those of you in the uh, industry. How how does one become a bestseller before going actually being published? Ah, well, shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically because the New York Times bestseller list is pretty much meaningless. What? Uh, like they, they've never fully disclosed exactly how you get on it, but word around the campfire is that there are uh, a, a select handful of bookstores made on the eastern seaboard that the Times pulls to see how first week sales of a, a, a book have gone. Now, here's the thing. All pre-orders that, uh, that have been made up to launch day count into the first week oh. according to the times and i guess they would i guess they would that makes sense so it's kind of gaming the system right and the thing is it's an open secret everybody in the business knows which bookstores or has a, has a pretty good guess which ones are pulled for uh, for the times list so there are even companies like the uh the big publishers do not sully themselves with um handling the filthy lucre themselves. But what they'll do is they'll basically launder it through these companies and be like, yeah, we will go and place massive orders of your book through these bookstores to drive up the numbers. And yeah, it, it just comes down to, if you want to spot the New York Times bestseller list in the first week, you can buy it. And the way you can tell if that's been done is look at what happens to the book sales the second week. If it launches and uh, debuts on the, the Times list, and then suddenly is, is gone, like drops a huge number of places the next week or drops off. Chances are that's what happened. The, uh, the demand was artificially created. Wow. Sorry yeah, for the digression. Just... So it's, it's been being outsold on Amazon by uh, what was then called the Corroding Empire. So if you are doubting its validity as a New York Times bestseller, uh, you are probably right in your uh, doubt. Yeah, well, it had been, because here's what happened. So Corroding Empire was, was set to launch, and suddenly Castellet House received an email saying, well, we've had to pull your book. It needs corrections, because we find that the cover author by the way, the, the author of Coding Empires, Johan Kalsi, the uh, six foot four inch ex Finnish marine badass and uh, renowned geneticist and uh, first time author. And they found uh, his, his name through an accident of birth is too close to John Scalzi's. And then also the, uh, the, you know, the cover art, the title, and the, the author were misleading. Well, Castelli had planned for this. They had an, another cover with a different author name. You know, a nom de plume for Mr. Calzy. 
and a new title just shortened to Corrosion, ready to go. So they, they immediately set up the process to get that going, and um, that really shouldn't have delayed the process of updating the book by much. Like, I've, I've always found that it takes just a few hours to get an update like that done. But this one dragged on for like a day, and I still even got to know the book had been approved under the new title, but it wasn't showing up. There was no page for it in the Kindle store. So Fox uh, got in contact with someone at Amazon who admitted it was out and they'd look into it. And long story short, the book then proceeded to come up and down on Amazon like a yo-yo three more times for for various reasons. Like uh, one said that, oh, well, the content of the book did not match the table of contents, which clearly, yeah, it sounded like someone just randomly selecting a reason from a drop-down menu that had nothing to do with it because of course that wasn't true the interior did match the table of contents <laughs> so that was when vox realized okay we, we might have a saboteur we might have a scalzy fan inside amazon who's messing with us and yeah amazon uh, conducted an investigation and found that, that was the case there was one uh one bad actor employee who was trying to sabotage the launch Oh, that's classic. Unbelievable. So Amazon is actually uh, s supporting Vox Day at this point. They realize that something's up. Oh, oh, my goodness, yes. He is actually negotiating with them to develop anti-fraud software for the review system for them. So he might wind <laughs> up with a, a software deal with Amazon on all this. They're also, like, the book is up. Um, it went up, like, two days late. But even still... Um, because the Streisand effect, uh, you know, even though the collapsing empire by John Scalzi ended up with a, a, a full day's head start, uh, Corroding Empire did extremely well. It's back up under the original title author and, and cover. And it was basically hovering within about 50 to 100 actual sales of this book with a multi-million dollar ad campaign. I mean, Tor is, uh, is doing ads all over Facebook, you know, they're buying ads on NPR. There's no all over the place to push this thing because really their whole business plan for the year rides on it. And here comes this upstart parody book that is selling in the same league. As it's totally we should clarify, folks. Um, a parody book is normally something like Board of the Rings by uh, National Lampoon. It's humorous, it's light, it's meant to make fun of the book that it's mocking. This is not a parody book in that sense. This is more of a, um, it's a very real, very serious, apparently very well-written science fiction novel in the same style or and based off of the same Asimov works at his foundation found uh, and those other books second foundation so on and so forth um but uh it's done better than scalzi's work so it's not so much a parody as it is showboating is what it is um it's them mocking scalzi by doing what he has planned to do what he set out to do but doing it better uh so it's not a it's not meant to be a light humorous work it's it is a dead serious science fiction novel that just was happened to be uh the idea for it was based entirely on doing what scalzi's shtick is but doing it 
better. So. Oh, um, that must really grind their gears. Uh, Scalzi actually had somebody jump into his uh, Twitter stream and congratulate him on writing the Corroding Empire. <laughs> um, yep. So I'm sure that. Uh, I'm sure that uh, did not endear him to this situation anymore. So, but I I have bought it. Uh, I actually, technically speaking, bought it twice because after Amazon yanked it four times, I didn't know if I was going to get a refund, and I couldn't download the book on my Kindle on my computer. So I bought it again at the Castalia House blog site so I could download it uh, and stick it on my phone and on my computer and read it. And that way it'd have a backup copy. It's certainly possible, folks. It's technologically possible for Amazon to actually go onto your devices and delete stories that you, uh, delete books that you have purchased and downloaded. They downloaded to your computer. Amazon can delete those. They did it with a copy of 1984 that turned out to be unauthorized in the United States. So it wasn't allowed to be sold in the United States because the book is still in copyright. And so all of the people who had copies of 1984 on their Kindles uh, got it deleted. Just Amazon vaporized it. And I'm pretty sure they gave refunds. But still, it's a really disconcerting notion that I can have a book on my phone that I've downloaded through the Kindle app that Amazon can just delete anytime they want and I have no control over it. So I wanted to have some control over whether or not I, uh, whether or not my book was there. And so I regularly back up my Amazon folder on my computer that has all of my eBooks in them so that I have an independent cached copy of my works and Amazon can't delete them. And I also bought this specific work again in EPUB from the Castalia House blog site. So I would have uh, another backup that wouldn't depend on what Amazon um, decided to do with the book. Now that was back when I was thinking Amazon might actually decide to memory hole it. It appears as if that is not the case now. Um, and so uh, I, may, I don't have to worry about it with this specific title, but if you're wondering, in the future going forward, if you buy books on Amazon, you might want to, and you download them to your PC, you might want to make an effort to have a backup of your Amazon folder, uh, save it to some place so that you can have uh, access to your works, even if Amazon decides to, to disappear them. And <clears throat> many of the works you buy on Amazon are protected by DRM. And we will not discuss any of the specifics of that on the show but it is possible for you to edge around that for your own use. Uh, so that's all I'm going to say about that. There's one other thing I should point out, which is that um, initially the Croding Empire was actually better reviewed than the Collapsing Empire. They, uh, they started out with um, Collapsing Empire being at like an average 3.6 star rating and Croding Empire being at like 4.2, I think. But then Scalzi's fans, you know, some, some rogue fans got uh, got the idea to uh, spam the Croding Empire with fake one-star reviews. And you can easily tell if you just go to Amazon and like filter out all the uh, non-verified purchases, it's still at the higher rating. So if you compare people who actually bought the book it's still more highly reviewed, but a bunch of people who haven't bought it are 
are coming and saying things like, oh, I got confused. I thought this was Scalzi's book and, and it turned out to be a ripoff. Don't buy this. When it's clear to <laughs> anyone who can read. Like, you, there's really no way to make that mistake. So um, the other thing that Amazon has asked Fox for is a list of accounts that have left fake one-star reviews on Castalia books. And last I'd heard yesterday, he'd supplied them with a, a full report on 250 accounts that are <laughs> spamming one-star reviews. And it's like, they're taking this very seriously. Again, they're in negotiations with this guy to provide them with anti-fraud software because Amazon knows that reviewers are their bread and butter. They're why online commerce works. So they take it very seriously. So basically if you'd like to run the very serious risk of having your account suspended, go ahead and leave a one-star review on the Croding Empire. All right, well, um, I'm interested in reading the book. It's on my list. Unfortunately, I have dozens of works ahead of it, uh, including John Mollison's uh, newest work, uh, which is reviewing really well. Let me let me grab that. But I, I cut off John. Sorry, man. What were you going to say? Oh, I, I did have a question for Brian, and, and I, I think you've answered this already on Twitter, but you've talked a couple times about writing something for Castelli House, so I have to ask on the air, live. Are you Johan Kalsi? No. Oh. That and that, that disappoints me as well. Because uh yeah, looking looking at his sales, I, I really wish I could uh claim those royalties. Because uh, <laughs> by by a twist of fate, so uh, Box estimates that um the Croding Empire has sold about one third as many copies at launch as Collapsing Empire did, which one uh, again for you know kind of a a showboating book from a micro publisher compared to like the flagship title by the number one publisher in science fiction and fantasy that that's amazing but also because uh that's about that's about how much more you make on a castelli house contract than on a traditional publishing ebook contract um, Johan Kalsi probably made as much. Well, actually, he, he almost certainly made more in royalties this week than Scalzi did on Collapsing Empire. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, so the thing I wanted to mention was uh, Sudden Rescue by John Mollison just came out. I bought that. That's in my queue. It's available on uh, on the Amazon on the Kindle store on Amazon. It's getting. Uh, getting very good reviews from a lot of people um and uh raleigh nyanzi i apologize i always if i mess up the name i apologize wrote sword and flower i bought that that's on my uh on my machine ready to be read at some point in the future um i've got just so many books in my queue that i can't read that i i really 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 want to get to and unfortunately, the Corroding Empire is uh, is one of those. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm just too 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 busy to read all the books that I that I want to read. John C. Wright's latest book is also on there. The um, I can't even remember the name. Do you know the name? Is that Daughter of Danger? Daughter of Danger. Yeah, that's on my phone. Hasn't been read yet. Um, so many books. 
that uh, that I haven't been able to to get to. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'm excited. I hope to get to them soon. But until then, um, all I can do is tell you guys about them and say, hey, these are getting good reviews. Um, let's see, I've got Starship Grifters and a couple of other Rob Crease books. Rob is, by the way, supposed to be on the show today. Hopefully, we'll get him back on very very soon. Um, I'm just looking at my list, man. All these books here that I have that I haven't been able to read that I wanted to read. It's depressing me. I need to shut this down. All right. Do we want to talk about something else? Let's move on. Um, Mr. Warpig, I, I heard that you've recently enjoyed it, the latest in Netflix's uh, superhero show offerings. I did. I watched, well, I don't know about, I don't know if enjoyed it is the right word. I watched all of um, Iron Fist, the newest Netflix Marvel show. It's the fourth show in their Defenders lined up, which started with Daredevil, then went to Jessica Jones, uh, and then went to Luke Cage, and now it's Iron Fist. And it's all leading up to later this year, sometime in the fall, I think, uh, the Defenders, which is where these four superheroes will get together finally as a group and go out and figure out what's going on in the city of New York with the hand and stop it. So I did watch that uh, this weekend and on Monday. Um, a lot of, all of the, let me back up. There was a lot of BS controversy around this show from the beginning because it's a martial arts show. What it really is, what Iron Fist really is, is a retelling of the Tarzan legend uh, along the same lines as Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. Stranger in a Strange Land is about a human who crash lands on Mars and gets raised by Martians and comes back to Earth and brings Martian culture with him. Well, Iron Fist is about a New Yorker, the scion of a wealthy industrial family who crash lands in the Himalayas, gets uh, picked up by a group of uh, martial arts monks, and in a mystical city that is actually located in another dimension, spends 15 years learning how to fight martial arts and then becomes the bearer of their great and holy martial arts power called the Iron Fist. His fists literally light up with flames and he can, uh, and it gives him a lot of strength, gives him a lot of speed, actually allows him to deflect bullets, things like that. And he can heal people using his key, his inner strength. Now, here's the biggest problem with Iron Fist is that for 13 hours, they use every single excuse they can to prevent the Iron Fist from actually being Iron Fist. They do everything they can to prevent him from using this cool special ability that makes him a superhero. Why? Um, I've got theories. I have no good answers. I don't think there are good answers. The, the problem with the series is it's a 13-hour origin story. It's like those 13 hours. If you remember the very first Spider-Man movie, he got bit by the spider. I'm thinking in like 2000 and uh, the year 2000, um, where he gets bit by the red and green uh, spider or the red and blue spider. And then goes back to his room, 
goes through all these pains as his body is changing and developing. He's growing the hairs on his fingers, and he gets uh, organic web shooters in his arms. And then he starts using his abilities and puts together a costume. And I think we're up at that point to like 40% through the movie, maybe halfway through the movie. So if you can imagine that first hour of Spider-Man is the entirety of this series. Everything up to that first hour of Spider-Man. So wait, it's, it's an origin story that takes a whole freaking season to tell? Yes, they took, well, I don't know if it takes a whole season to tell. I do know that they took a whole season to tell it, if you can see the difference there. Yeah, just like it, it took three movies to tell The Hobbit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, let me back up. The, the reason why there was a bunch of controversy is because he's a martial arts character, and the actor who plays Danny Rand is white. People were upset about that. They said he should be Asian. Well, Danny Rand in the comics is a white person, and the entire story itself, the entire Stranger in a Strange Land Tarzan story requires him to have been white, to have gone off and learned stuff in a foreign country, and then come back to his own. It has to be that way. Otherwise, you're telling a completely different story. You've completely thrown out everything about the character. So this became a controversy online, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of bloggers, and a lot of like mainstream people. I believe if you read the uh, the Atlantic's review of the series, is almost entirely about how racist it is that he's not Asian. They marked it down. It's got a, a rating of about 14% on Rotten Tomatoes from these mainstream reviewers. The customer reviews, on the other hand, are running about 86%. And both of those on either side are just incredibly wrong. 86% is way too high a rating, and 14% is way just insanely, obscenely too low a rating. Um, if I had to rate this, I would probably put it at around 50 to 60%. Uh, not great. Very disappointing on a lot of uh, on a lot of levels. And I'll tell you what. This is a martial arts character, so you would expect, I would expect, going into the series, there to be martial arts action, to be fights, and there are a couple of fights, and a couple of the fights, and there are several fights, and a couple of the fights are good, but none of them. None, not a single one fight, not a single fight in this entire series is as good as the best stuff from Daredevil. Like his two, you know, famous fight scenes where they were all shot in one cut and he's fighting people going up and down the hall and doors are getting knocked down. Nothing, nothing, nothing that's even close to how exciting and visceral the fights in Daredevil are. Um, in Daredevil, the second season, the one enemy they fought the most was a bunch of ninjas called the Hand. Nothing in this series equals or beats the fight scenes with the Hand from Daredevil Season 2. It's just, and for a martial arts superhero, that is completely, uh, that completely lets the audience down. It's a complete dereliction of duty. If he's not doing kick-ass fight scenes, and there's no reason to be watching this because nothing else in the series is that interesting. They padded out, as we've discussed, 
what could have been a very quick story. They could have gotten rid of his origin story in one episode, yet they padded it out to 13. They could have, during the rest of the episodes, and, and there's a theory. I talked about this with John last night. Here's a theory he put forward that I think is a very good theory, but let me let me explain what the problem I saw was, and he can explain his theory. His theory. They tried to make a 13-hour movie to where all the episodes taken as a whole were one movie, and it just didn't work. Now, what was your theory about that, John? Because you came up with this. So, so these guys have this insight in about the way people consume the these shows on streaming services is that it's well known that a lot of people binge watch. They'll watch several episodes at a time, cut, get through season as soon as possible. It's part of the reason why Netflix and Amazon have been releasing entire series at once instead of one episode at a time. And my gut tells me that these writers and producers came in and said, well, if people are going to binge watch this, let's make it a whole experience from start to finish. We don't need to have it encapsulated episodes you know the episode doesn't have to you know stand on its own because we're gonna we're gonna make something that people are gonna binge watch four or five hours at a time and the problem with that and i hadn't thought of that theory that's not it's entirely john's theory that's why i let him you know wanted him to do it but the problem with that is that it means you have to either have so much stuff happening that it makes sense in 13 hours or you just have a lot of what in bands they call marking time which is just things happening but they don't really impact anything else and nothing that they don't really it, at the end of the 13 hours you look back and say well why the hell did we spend all of this time on that plot line or these characters or those events none of it mattered none of it made a difference because it's supposed to be one story 13 episodes all telling the same story, you don't spend 20% or 30% or 50% of a book on things that never, ever matter in the end. They have to matter. If you're putting something into a story, it has to matter. Even if it's just there as a red herring, it has to matter. And all this stuff they put in, much of it was just a distraction. Most of it was just to waste time. What I think they needed to do and we both came up with the same metaphor about this uh, independently. Um, do, you want, do you want to tell them the metaphor, John? Well, I think they simply unlearned all the lessons learned from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hmm. The One of the things that they did best is they had a, a season-long arc with a story, with what they called in their, <clears throat> excuse me, in their, in the bullpen was the big bad. But every single episode was a self-contained story that stood on its own. You could watch any episode in a season and enjoy it. Um, and they absolutely needed to adopt something like that, to where each of the 13 episodes has self-contained, had a beginning, middle, and end story, and even a, a B plot and a C plot, because in our long dramas, or even half-hour uh, sitcoms, you can have a B plot and a C plot. All of that working on, and then some of the stuff plays into or references or has um, connections with what's going on the, over the 13 episodes, but each individual story is its own separate thing. There are so many things that they could have done. What I would have liked to have seen, ideally, is them to spend maybe a third of the episodes, maybe a, uh, maybe 
you know, a little bit more than that, maybe 40% of the episodes on this overarching plot and then leave the rest to be Danny Rand doing cool Iron Fist stuff. Whatever that is. Whatever it is that you come up with. Not necessarily fighting the hand all the time, but Claire, who is the night nurse, who's been in all three series previously, she's the nurse who always gets in to help heal people. Maybe Claire has a problem with whatever. It doesn't matter, police harassment, or she's being harassed by her hospital, or whatever, and she needs help from Iron Fist. So Iron Fist, for an entire hour-long episode, we set up Claire's life separate from Iron Fist. We set up the problem that's happening in her life. She Iron Fist finds out about it. He goes and does his Iron Fist stuff, and that's the end of the episode. It lets you expand on the character of Claire. It lets you expand on what Iron Fist himself is doing in New York. And it's an entire hour of action, an entire hour of conflict that is really, really cool and will draw people in and make it worthwhile to see that self-contained show. They should have done that more than they did. Um, it, it just would have been so much cooler to have Iron Fist be Iron Fist. He gets to the city, and yes, he's this rich kid, and he's trying to take back control of his dad's company and all of that. But when he's in this company, when he's in this business, he's this naive, indecisive person because he's completely at sea. He has no idea what to do about it. But then as soon as he has a problem that he can punch, as soon as he knows the hands in the city, he gets calm, he gets centered, he gets focused because this is what he spent 15 years training to do. And he goes out and wreaks havoc on bad guys. He goes out and kicks ass. He goes out and does the stuff you want to see in a comic book movie. You watch comic book movies to either see comic book heroes beating up criminals or to see comic book heroes beating up supervillains. You don't watch a superhero series to see people sitting around in a boardroom arguing over who has the largest percentage of votes as a shareholder and can appoint people to the board and whether or not the public relations crisis consultant they've hired has an effective plan to deal with the public relations crisis inadvertently caused by Danny Rand saying to an innocent person on the street who comes up to him and says, oh, your company is doing this bad thing. And he's a little bit naive. And he just says to her, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. We'll do everything we can to make it right. Well, as a lawyer, what you have in that situation is that's an admission of culpability that actually, in a legal sense, that actually puts culpability on your... Do you see what I'm talking about here? How boring that is? I'm not making that up. That's not a hypothetical. It really happens in this show. I nodded That's off for a second there. A real plot line. You you don't watch superhero shows to deal with issues like that as the major plot, as a dominant plot for most of the episodes or many of the episodes. You watch them for the action, for the adventure, for Danny Rand kicking ass as Iron Fist. And they did everything they could to make sure that that is absolutely not what the audience got. Amen. So I'm getting a, I'm getting a probably don't watch it vibe from you, Daddy Four Pig. Is that accurate? Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know what to tell people. I, there was nothing that was unique or new or compelling enough in this series that unless you're either going to be reviewing it like I do, or you're a Marvel completionist, which, you know, that's fine. They're there. They're out there. I used to be a Marvel completionist, but uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. killed my enthusiasm for that. Um, I, I don't know what it is I would tell people to be watching it for. I mean, it's not so much I'm saying, oh, it's absolutely terrible. They did nothing good. That's not true. It's not absolutely terrible. They did several good things in it, but they made fundamental story decisions, fundamental character decisions that kept them from doing all the cool stuff they could have done and kept them from exploiting all the potential plots that are implicit in the setting of the Marvel Universe's New York City. And they made it a lot more pointless. A lot of the series was just pointless. So, you know, if someone came along and took these 13 hours and edited them down to a six-hour compilation and got rid of all the boring stuff, maybe it would be watchable then. I mean, The Hobbit, the three movies of The Hobbit became an incredible movie when you edited it down to like two and a half hours. When you took the nine hours and edited it down to two and a half. Maybe if someone did this for Iron Fist, then it would be watchable because you'd have all the good stuff and none of the filler. But there is so much filler. Yeah, I was, I was looking forward to this one too. Wow. Um, all right. Do, do you guys have any questions? Do we have any uh, questions between uh, uh, questions from the chat before we uh, take off? Uh, chat has been chatting away about Star Wars of all things. We've got no direct questions. And about how much they like your rant. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll, have to, we'll have to talk about the chat's topics on another episode. Really interesting stuff about the uh, Chinese influence on uh, Hollywood these days. I uh, Defenders, by the way, is not going to be 13 episodes. It's only going to be eight. And it's going to have all four of these superheroes in it. So it's certainly possible that all of these problems that have, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, even the great, the two great shows, the best shows on the Netflix Marvel, which is Daredevil Season 1 and Daredevil Season 2, have had some of this problem of padding and filler to try and make it into a 13-hour movie. Um, not as much as, as crippled Luke Cage, not as much as just crippled uh, Iron Fist, but they've all had this problem to a greater or lesser extent. Defenders being only eight episodes may indicate that there isn't much or isn't any filler in these shows. So that would be uh, that would be really, really good, really, really good as far as uh, as far as uh, making an excellent series. So I'm still looking forward to the defenders. If the defenders is also bad, then that might, put me off of being a Marvel completionist for a while. Um, That's too bad. Any Anything uh, Anything you want to talk about, Brian, before we go? Okay. So John Mollison asked for a scoop on my Castalia House book that, that I, I'm currently working on. So let's just say that I was also handpicked for a particular uh, project that's been kicking around at Castalia House and 
you could say that the Croting Empire is kind of an appetizer. I love appetizers, man. Is that um, all you're allowed to say? I'm pretty sure that's all he's allowed to say right now, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Specifics. <laughs> do, uh, do you have any last thoughts before we go, John? I've got two. First is a question from the chat. Ben Rodriguez is asking if we've seen Power Rangers. Uh, and I haven't, despite the uh, appeal of Elizabeth Banks in another crazy uh, costume and makeup. Uh, have you guys? No, I wasn't planning on it. Sorry, sorry, Ben. <laughs> that's that, uh, that's a zero for three for you. I um, I missed. I really missed Power Rangers. I think I I was uh, a bit too old to get get in on the craze. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and Daddy Warpig, of course. I was just. I I think I was just old enough when they started that I watched a few episodes and said, "Hey, cool, kung fu fighting," and then you know never caught on. That's not that I dislike it. I have my friends who are huge Power Rangers fans. Uh, ben Rodriguez is obviously li liking what he's seeing, so more power to you. Um, what was the second thing? The other thing I wanted to I wanted to give a shout out to Yod Khan in the chat. He really wanted to hear about D and D. Um, I I started a new. Uh, I, I I'm running the same game, but I got a few new players, and I've switched to fifth edition which is slightly more old school than 3.5. Um, we'll talk a lot about that if we get um, our last guest back on. Uh, we were going to talk, we were going to do a whole episode on RPGs. So, yeah, Rick. Sorry? Rick Stump should be coming back on next week's show. Oh, great, great. Well, if that happens, then Excellent. we'll get you a full episode of D&D. &D. Um, all right. Uh, so... Thanks for tuning in to GeekGab, folks. Uh, we are taking off for today. Um, man, there was something else I was going to talk about before we, we tuned off. Oh, yeah. John Mawson, who was just in the chat. I have a message for John. This is a personal message specifically for you from Jim Fear 138 He says that... Uh, oh, should I phrase this the way he said it? I'll phrase it the way I would have said it if I were saying it. He says that you need to get off your tuchus and start publicizing your book more because he thinks it's really, really good and he thinks more people need to hear about it. So he wants to see you doing more to publicize your book so that more people can hear about it, more people can read it. So uh, I sat down with Jim Fear 138 this week and we did a two hour podcast recording that is supposed to be released on his website, on his weblog sometime today. So uh, we talk about Superversive SF, the movement. We talk about the Pulp Revolution. We talk about um, being audience friendly and why the model that's been kind of passed around to the Pulp Revolution of mops, fans, psychopaths, and creators, why that's wrong. Uh, we also talk about um, why the platonic form of hard SF doesn't actually exist as a genre that every form of hard SF or every definition of hard SF people use is uh, varies greatly from that for specific and necessary reasons. Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff we spent two hours talking about. Uh, I enjoyed it. I think, uh, um, 
I think uh, I think it was an enjoyable show. I think you'd like it. And uh, if you uh, check out Jim Fear one thirty eight on Twitter, and he will put up a link to that. And I'll of course be uh, be retweeting it and stuff and putting it out of the places. So thanks for turning in, folks. This has been Geek Gab, episode ninety one for Saturday, March twenty fifth, two thousand and sixteen. We uh, are available on the iTunes Music Store. You can subscribe to the podcast there, automatically download to your iPad, to your iTunes, or to your iPhone, whatever. You can also get us on the Google Play Store. Just, again, do a search for GeekGab, and you can get it on your Android device. You can also uh, check us out on the web at soundcloud.com. Just do a search for GeekGab. And as always, when we do the live shows, assuming that some technical problem doesn't bounce us off the air like it did last week uh we do this usually about 3 p.m uh eastern time on youtube.com slash geek gab there's going to be a time change coming up in the middle of uh april but we'll get to that when we get to that we'll tell you about it when we get to there but for right now 3 p.m eastern time just about every single week you can check us out uh participate in the chat ask all the questions you want we uh highly encourage that for you guys thanks for tuning in we your hosts are leaving you for today but don't worry don't fret we will be back